You're going right back to bed. But I haven't brushed my teeth yet. Lost and Twin Peaks, part of the Lost in the Movies podcast network. You can support this network at patreon.com slash lost in the movies and also view a lot of my other work, whether it be videos, podcasts, image posts, and of course, many, many written essays and reviews at lostinthemovies.com. This is an interesting episode because it's going to be early in the run for patrons but I'm also going to be sharing this down the line with a wider public several years from when it's initially recorded. Today's episode is focused exclusively on the missing pieces, particularly the storylines that are in that uh, deleted scene collection that's really assembled into a parallel film. I've been covering the missing pieces now for a few days, both mixed in with Fire Walk With Me, and also I did an episode just on the historical context and production context uh, that the, the missing pieces came out with. Uh, came out in, I should say, back in 2014. And today, again, it will just be missing pieces we're talking about. And after this, it'll pretty much just be Firewalk with me for the whole next week. And we're going to continue with the narrative focus, talking about the storylines of Firewalk with me after today. But first, let's go through the missing pieces, uh, starting on the periphery with some of the standalone scenes, some of the material that's brand new to Firewalk with me, moving backward through storylines that go further and further back into Twin Peaks. And finally, into the Laura storylines uh, until we reach the point of her murder, at which point we'll look briefly at the mystery from the show, Who Killed Laura Palmer, and how that kind of applies to the missing pieces, and then ask our three big questions we ask about every piece of Twin Peaks. Who is Laura Palmer? Who is Agent Cooper? And uh, what is Twin Peaks? And we'll ask those in that order instead of the order we usually ask them in, where we end with Laura in the episodes uh, we're going to do that with both Missing Pieces and Firewalk With Me, but for different reasons. Uh, for Missing Pieces case, the reason that I'm going to ask them in that order is I want to, you know, we're going to be talking about Laura's murder and the storyline and the mystery of it. So I want to start with that and then kind of move back out to Twin Peaks, because when we start Firewalk With Me, we'll be starting on the periphery of that and moving toward Laura again. So sort of two movements there. So I think it makes sense in that order here. A couple quick housekeeping notes for those listening to this podcast in May 2022 for the uh, public release. First of all, uh, there's been some delays this past week, some uh, things have been taking longer than I expected, so the Illustrated Companion has gone up halfway through this two weeks of podcast rather than at the outset as was originally intended. So May 14th, 2022, Saturday today, that Illustrated Companion is up, the screenshots are there. Uh, the links, everything, and uh, you can check that out now. Now, also, a couple of the episodes have been delayed, or, well, one so far uh, the other day, and that was just an oversight. The episode was ready, but I forgot to uh, add the show notes and put it out, so it went out the next morning. This one, though, you're also probably listening to delayed, and that's because 
this was one of the last ones I put together, uh, re-edited and repackaged and everything like that. Uh, late on May 14th when it was supposed to go out till probably into May 15th. Now, the virtue of this is that actually means it will be going up on an anniversary, which is May 15th, 2014, uh, was when the Missing Pieces trailer was released. So that was when it was announced that there were going to be deleted scenes included with the entire mystery Blu-ray set. So I, I guess by accident, by uh, me taking so long to get this episode together, uh, this is coming out on an anniversary there, eight years after that was uh, announced. So that's cool. But uh, just so you know, for the rest of the episodes until the last one, they're all already totally prepared. Because this episode is going up so late, I'm uh, going to put the next one out that was going to go up today, tomorrow. And then I'll uh, catch up in the next couple days. I might put the two uh, episodes on Laura scenes up in the same day, which would be Tuesday. Or I may put the first one up tomorrow night but i'll stagger it so that by uh, the end of tuesday i'm caught up with the original schedule and then we'll finish the week out with uh, morning podcasts on wednesday thursday and friday if not before thank you for your patience with all of that and uh, as far as whether this goes on into season three i guess that depends how much work i get done next week but for now let's focus on the missing pieces the feel of the missing pieces i would describe it as sort of dry sort of cool definitely aloof there's a lot of wide shots and long takes, not much music. It's closer to a late Lynch aesthetic. Even in some ways Inland Empire, although that's much more experimental and avant-garde and abrasive in its style. But some of the special effects and the editing decisions feel more digital, make it feel more like a 2014 project than a 1992 product, which it essentially is. At the same time, especially for people watching it when it was released, there's a strangeness to revisiting this world. We're seeing people who are dead or now much older than they were at this time, and we're seeing them for the first time as if this was a new release. You know, it's a 2014 premiere. There's something surreal about that that just hasn't been done that often in film history in this way, other than films that, you know, were supposed to come out at a certain time, were delayed, and then finally came out. But this was actually edited 20 years after the fact. There was new effects added. So it's just this strange mishmash of different eras. As a film, this is a pretty jagged film but uh, as a deleted scenes collection it's not nearly as jagged as you'd expect it builds its way as it goes along so as it starts out there's like black leader between the different scenes you know we we cut or fade to black and then go to the next scene during the deer meadow parts because they aren't that seamless they're a little bit odds and ends that were left out whereas during a lot of the laura and the twin peaks stuff those scenes flow much more nicely together so lynch will actually cut between them it starts to really feel like a movie at that point around the midpoint of it and i think that might have been more what i had in mind when i said wouldn't it be interesting to you know just jump from the series to this and then firewalk with me but it feels probably more like a short story collection than a novel if we're going to make a literary anal uh, analogy here. There's all of these little different stories going on in the in the town, and Lark provides like a spine through it. It's like Dubliners or something like that. You know, think of a short story collection where it's all part of one big web, but also distinct units within that. And that's basically what this feels like. Nonetheless, I think people who accidentally see this before the movie are just bewildered. They can recognize it's not a movie proper, but they're not really sure what it is because it doesn't really feel like a deleted scenes collection either there's a very rosencrantz and gildenstern feel to the missing pieces that's the play by tom stoppard where he follows these two uh you know these two very minor comical characters 
around Elsinore as the events of Hamlet are happening. So they're all happening off stage and they're finding out things. And, you know, it's just a humorous riff on this great tragedy to sort of follow around this this side aspect and there's a feel of uh, there's a feel of that to the missing pieces too we do spend a lot of time with laura but we're always seeing her through other characters eyes or at least in the presence of other characters and that's a real distinction from firewalk with me this of course is not as comical as that play so there's actually a sort of a poignant longing to it it feels like it's it creates this yearning for an unseen story much as the series itself does actually and of course, the ultimate revelation that even Lynch didn't know at the time is that what it's yearning for is Firewalk with me. It's it's sort of willing that movie into existence. But the of course, Missing Pieces it does that in a different way than the series, partly because it's created out of the material of Firewalk with me, or what was intended to be Firewalk with me. Uh, there's also a mix to it where it's part prequel, part sequel. Um, much more so than the film itself is. There's really only that one scene in the film that refers to the events of the finale, whereas in this, there's a whole little coda at the end that feels like... It it feels like the first part, the majority of the missing pieces, is like the pilot missing pieces, and the second part is the finale missing pieces, where they're directly following up to things from the finale. And a lot of fans, when this came out, were just thrilled giddy i remember hearing podcasts where they was like okay now we get to the good stuff which i didn't really relate to because i didn't feel that like there needed to be a season three i was thrilled and excited when there was one but it wasn't something i was looking for you know for me it wasn't like marvel movie or like almost back to the future or something where it's like oh now we're picking up where we left off what's gonna happen next and this excitement of the plot development Uh, but that was like a real palpable feel i think for many people and that comes entirely from those last few scenes in the missing pieces as of with Firewalk Me, of course, because originally these were all the same thing. It was written by Robert Engels. You can see a lot of his humor here. Uh, I focus on that more in the Firewalk Me episode. But lines like Bear Arcudas and the weird thing where they're saying good night, Irene. I mean, good morning. You know, all of the type of humor. It feels very much like it. it's the cross-section of Lynch and Engels' rather corny sense of humor. Uh, but ultimately, this is... Uh, totally a solo Lynch product production, even more so really than Firewalk with me because he's editing the footage on his own now. And as I said, it's not just the difference in his aesthetic shifting over time, but the fact that Mary Sweeney, the editor uh, who edited all of his uh, work for f- 10, 15 years is, uh, I guess, about a dozen years really, is not uh, involved with this project at all. So it ha- it just naturally has a very different feeling. The overall structure of the missing pieces follows the structure of Firewalk with me essentially more the screenplay than the finished film. It's interesting where he chooses to put some scenes where like Lars in a certain costume that would make you think, oh, this should go later in the film. But if you look at how it was originally scripted, it's like, oh, okay, no, this matches where that would go. That's interesting. I don't know if he went back and consulted the script as a reference to figure this stuff out, if he compared it to the movie, if he just kind of remembered or what he used to slot these scenes in. But it's just sort of interesting to watch this way. We're watching like a shadow version of the film in a way. Really, the focus of the missing pieces is how the various characters of Twin Peaks encounter Laura in her last days. Though she draws them all together, we see hardly anything of her alone. 
The footage was shot to convey one thing, but slipped into a structure that conveys something else. So the central story is that Laura Palmer is in trouble in a vaguely defined, but still palpable sense. She's taking drugs, she's sleeping around, there's possibly something else going on. We really don't get to the central trauma of Firewalk With Me in The Missing Pieces. It's suggested, hinted at here and there, but we we just don't really get to it. And as far as her father murdering her, I think somebody could watch it, you know, that theoretical person who hadn't seen Twin Peaks or The Missing Pieces, they would probably presume that's her body floating in the water at the end because there's a lot of stuff leading up to that. And you hear her, the screams as the log lady's sitting there. I don't know if they would know who killed her. I mean, I would think they would assume it's the dad because of that, that creepy scene where Leland's walking up the yard and he stops and stares at her as she's hiding in the bushes. I guess theoretically somebody could see it and think that she's just nervous about being caught when she's going to go out. She doesn't want her dad to see her, but uh, there's a lot, that's a lot darker scene than that. But you know, there's nothing about Leland and Bob in this missing pieces. There's nothing um, other than that one scene where he's staring at her in the yard to suggest his abuse of her or anything like that. It's all still very much left off screen and sort of held off for Firewalk with me in a way. So that's the main story, the Laura Palmer, uh, her, her troubled life. And then other stories surrounding that include Chet and Sam roaming around Deer Meadow to get food and find out a little bit about Teresa Banks and retrieve her body from the sheriff's station. And later Cooper trying to find out what's happening to Chet. Jeffries, Agent Jeffries, the mysterious FBI agent played by David Bowie, of course, disappearing from Argentina, showing up in Philadelphia and then reappearing in Argentina. The spirits have some sort of meeting above the convenience store. Bobby, Mike, and Laura are trying to get the cocaine. Ben Horn is negotiating with Norwegians. Ed Norma are trying to find time to see each other. Shelly is afraid of Leo. Uh, we see Teresa's relationship to Leland Palmer. We see Sheriff Truman staking out the Renault brothers' drug ring. Laura sends Jacoby some audio tapes. Truman's relationship to Josie is hinted at. Cooper is trapped in the red room. Annie is pulled out from Glastonbury Grove. The doppelganger is recovering from his head wound that he got at the end of the finale. Most of these things are only stories or subplots because of what we know of them from either Firewalk With Me or the series. Uh, On their own, they're just these strange little fragments of scenes that don't particularly go anywhere but are hinting at some larger hole and then the rest of the scenes that don't even fit that description they're just sort of standalone glimpses of the characters in their daily lives there actually aren't too many of those most of the scenes we see in the missing pieces relate to larger uh, series stories that lynch wanted to bring into firewalk me and ultimately couldn't in the missing pieces a few storylines return that have been gone for a long time uh you know since uh, that, that did not come back in firewalk with me but only come back in these deleted scenes. And those include Therapy, the Packard Sawmill Ghostwood Deal storyline, and then also the Briggs family life. We have, I would say, really only three standalone character scenes that don't relate to any other subplots that we've had, you know, or would expect to have. One is Cooper talking to Diane. So this is the closest we've come to seeing Diane at this point, who we've only heard through a tape recorder. Cooper walks up to her office or he's at her office. He's doing calisthenics or whatever on her door and grinning and laughing and saying, what have you changed in here? What did you change? Oh, yes. You you changed the position of the clock, moved over 
you know, a few inches or something. I'm the dashing Agent Cooper. It's a very bizarre little scene. I think that the scene that Lynch was hesitant to include in the missing pieces was the sheriff cable fight scene, but it might have been this one. So I'll put them both out there, cover my bases. It may have been this scene that Lynch was like, "Ah, I don't know. And they were like, no, you got to include this. It's Diane. And of course, you know, she's only a tape recorder. So are we going to see her? No, there's no dubbing. There's no anything. It's just him talking. Almost leaves us wondering even more if she's an imaginary character. Then we get Pete, Josie, and Del Mibbler, the bank teller, in the lumberyard. This is a hilarious little scene. Just kind of a lovable trio of misfits trying to figure out what the heck is going on with their two-by-fours, the lumberyard. Quintessentially Lynchian, this practical knowledge made into a bizarre comic tirade. It works very well. I love the cutaways to Mibbler's reactions. That actor makes me laugh so hard. Like that scene in the finale where he's wandering around the bank, just looking lost and confused. Even thinking of it makes me laugh. Like I love that scene so much. That's a top 10 scene of Twin Peaks for me. Josie says, uh, we could all end up in a courthouse illegally or something. You know, one of her malapropisms that she used to make all the time in season one. It's another thing that calls back to the early part of the series because I don't remember doing that often in season two and eventually of course we even find out it was pretty much an act anyways now despite the humor there's a poignant aspect to this scene as well which is that all three of these characters are going to be dead in a month within this fictional world and actually it's a little shocking when you think of it that way like the whole big thing of twin peaks especially the pilot overhanging over the series is this shocking death in this small community that you know this teenage girl beloved town figure has died but so many people are going to die in this community like over the course of this show which is only 30 days so just that kind of throws the pilot in a different light if you think on the one hand it kind of cheapens it a little of like okay yeah she's dead but all these people are going to die pretty soon anyways on the other hand it almost makes it more powerful in a way of like she's unleashed something which is going to swallow up the rest of the community as well even though they don't die in any way related to anything to do with her but it is just kind of a funny thing to think about and of course on a more serious level uh two of the three actors are dead now and were probably within i don't know when the del mibbler actor died although he's pretty darn old here and of course jack nance died about five years later um you know fairly young so that's another level there and finally there's a last standalone character scene is the one-armed man lighting candles with his fingers which is a cool effect it's filmed backwards so he's extinguishing them as we're watching it he's actually lighting them with his fingers which is creepy and unsettling and it's the perfect transition to the flashback i mean i think lynch wanted it in here anyways it didn't fit in with firewalk with me but it was something he shot he wanted to have it in here yeah but the place he found for it is really good because first of all he's the one who triggers the flashbacks in firewalk with me by driving up and harassing leland and making him remember the stuff with Teresa. but in the sequence of the missing pieces it allows us without any sort of overt exposition because that's not how the missing pieces are assembled to find a way back into the past. Some new subplots, uh, well, new to Firewalk With Me slash The Missing Pieces, not just The Missing Pieces. We have Philip Jeffries in Buenos Aires uh, walking through this hotel, David Bowie, you know, in costume in his white suit and uh, Hawaiian shirt and sunglasses and um, red shoes, which look 
maybe a little bit like Dorothy's ruby red slippers. And uh, interestingly, Cameron Cloutier from the Obnoxious Anonymous podcast has pointed out, if you look closely, you can see David Bowie standing there waiting for his cue because his red shoes are sticking out from behind the curtain. It's kind of funny. A little slip up there. He, in this scene, just walks up to a hotel counter, says, uh, have you heard from Miss Judy? Or has somebody left a message? And the concierge gives him a message. He walks away with the bellboy. Next thing we see is him in Philadelphia walking out of the elevator all kind of distressed and this time unlike in Firewalk with me where it's mostly overlaid with footage of the convenience store meeting of the spirits we get a clear sequence of shots of him in this room talking to the FBI agents in a weird way it's more down to earth which in some ways makes it more eerie because it's like this isn't just like a, a, a fever dream this is like some real person walked into the room from thousands of miles away or whatever and uh, maybe even some years in the past sat down talked to them and then disappeared it's like kind of uncanny interestingly this sequence uh, unlike in the film he said somebody says Mayday and he says May Mayday and he looks at the calendar and he says February 1989. This is how it was scripted. This was supposed to be intercut with Laura's first days or Laura's last seven days in Twin Peaks. And thank God they changed it. It works much better as it is in the film. However, the upshot of that is it's implied that uh, Philip Jeffries came to Philadelphia before Chet Desmond disappeared, which I also like because it's like, you know, organized. They should all feel interconnected whatever is going on. Don't just be like, hey, random adventures at the FBI office. Here's one now and here's one a year later. So putting it then makes sense. Um, but the implication is that it takes place in 1988. More on that later. Finally, we get Philip Jeffries zapped back, literally zapped back to the hotel stairway where he's uh, like just freaking out and going, ah! and the bellboy says he shat his pants and the maid is crawling on the floor. It's a pretty funny little scene. And uh, it has one of those effects moments that feels like, okay, this wasn't done at the time, probably. This is like a new thing where he zaps into place. We have Chet Desmond's disappearance in. In The Missing Pieces, we get a scene where Cooper goes to talk to Sam Stanley about what happened. Just asks him some questions. This was obviously meant to lead to his trip to Twin Peaks. And uh, Sam has a great uh, moment where he says, Sam Stanley, if you ever if you ever need me, he shows him the Whitman machine. He shows him the tea that was under uh, Teresa Banks' fingernail and all of that. And Cooper shakes his hand. And clearly this is a callback to the pilot where Cooper says to Diane, you know, get me uh, Albert, not Sam. Albert's a little more on the ball. So he he kind of has a weird relationship to Sam and that was something that they had in the script back when Chet Desmond was supposed to be Cooper. All of their dialogue was basically the same. So just as Chet makes fun of Sam, Cooper was supposed to. And But uh, I think maybe he would have been a little more on edge whereas Chet at least is bemused about it. Then to sort of move on to the finale subplots brought up in the finale that are mentioned here, we have Cooper trapped in the Black Lodge. First of all, we see the scene of him in the Red Room talking to the little man. Part of Laura's dream, but there's a sense in which we're guessing he's not just dreaming this himself he's actually in the red room and then the later we get the some months later title over glastonbury grove and we see that red room scene repeated but this time there's nothing indicating that Lars watching it there's different dialogue and this is very much clearly cooper trapped in the red room after the finale annie is mentioned in the red room scene with cooper and the little man but then of course we also see her being 
pushed into the hospital by nurses and doctors and medics, and she seems comatose. Oddly enough, she's wearing Caroline's dress, the dress we saw her wear at certain points in the Red Room, but not the black dress she was brought in with. Who knows why? Uh, And I think in the finale, when we see her come out of the lodge, she's wearing the black dress. So it may just be a continuity error. But then we see her in her hospital bed. She repeats the line that she says to Laura in Firewalk with me, the good Dale is in the lodge and he can't leave. Write it in your diary. And the nurse attending her notices the ring on her finger and is excited and picks it up and takes it and walks away with it. And the, you know, the Dark Woods theme music starts playing. And finally, the doppelganger. This we see... Uh, in an interesting fashion, we see Cooper laughing as he was at the end of the finale, the evil Cooper. And then he hears people coming. He lies down on the floor and he gets up as they come in. He says, oh, I fell. I hit my head. It was funny. It struck me as funny. Do you understand? Very strange delivery, which we're going to talk about more later. For Cocaine and Twin Peaks, the police investigation side, we see Truman talking to Hawk and Andy, telling them that there's a surveillance on... Uh, on the Renault brothers, but they've got to switch from Jacques to Bernie because Bernie's coming up. And this provides some kind of cover of why they're not watching Jacques the night that he is out with Laura. It provides a rationale that probably nobody was asking for, but I guess Lynch and Engels felt compelled to explain. And then later there's a scene where they're all sitting around in the sheriff's station. Truman says, you know, if you hear from Hawk, let me know, Andy. And this is supposed to be the night Laura died. So it's just reinforcing this idea that they're all out looking for the drug dealers and looking for Bernie Renault specifically on the night that Laura is killed. For Cocaine and Twin Peaks, the criminal activity side of it, we have Bobby and Mike talking amongst each other before Laura and Donna approach on the way to school. They're talking about cocaine, they're out, the football, I think he says the football was half empty and all this stuff, and it leads directly into the events of uh, episode one where we find out they're dealing drugs with Leo and everything like that. We also have the scene where Laura is uh, teasing Bobby about the having killed the guy and, you know, the cocaine and everything. He's really pissed and he's giving her a little sample and storming off and all of that. So we're seeing the personal consequences of their involvement with the drug trade. When Bobby finds out his Coke is baby laxative, he throws it all over the the forest floor. This is maybe the only callback that Firewalk With Me Missing Pieces has to mid-season two because it's that whole dead dog farm plot line where there's like baby laxative in the cocaine and that's how Cooper finds out they're using that place. And they stake it out and they get John Renault. It's just so far, so, so, so far from the world of Firewalk with me. It's fascinating to see that incorporated here. I, I kind of love that. It's like Law and Order being slipped into like a Ingmar Bergman film or something. I don't know. And then there's one more kind of reference to this, this criminal ring when Laura and Bobby are on the couch and they're talking. Sometimes these story sections overlap. The Josie Truman romance gets a nod when uh, Lucy tells Truman that Josie is, has called the station and she thought she heard a prowler around her house and Truman's like, well, I better go check it out. Again, something we only know from the series is much more than the innocuous <laughs> thing that it seems but uh lucy is on the phone uh, or on the intercom she screams and andy hears her and runs upstairs and they run into each other and scream another story section that's touched on in the missing pieces is bobby killed the guy as i call it this is something that was mentioned the pilot paid off in firewalk with me we get a little more of it here where laura's teasing bobby she won't let it go you killed mike and he's laughing she's laughing and he's definitely not with ed and norma romance we have the scene where nadine is shocked 
uh, at the way Norma's looking at Ed and they storm out. But then Ed comes back and uh, Norma's crying. She's sitting at a counter by herself. The double R just seems really barren. The wall outside is, doesn't have much markings on it. The parking lot is empty. Inside, nobody's there. It's like this really sad kind of depressing look at this beloved location. It's also the best look we've gotten up to this point at the actual interior of the location where they shot because you know they didn't shoot there during the series they created a set on a on a little stage this warm cozy diner but we're actually getting to look at the location itself just as we did in the pilot and we're getting a wide overhead shot that we never got in the pilot so we're getting a real sense of the space in there oddly enough there's a picture of uh, mount saint helens on the wall this doesn't have anything to do with ed and norma but since we're talking about the diner might as well and it reminded me that there was somebody i feel like i read somewhere that lynch said he based part of the design of the of the uh, John Merrick makeup, uh, which he ended up not doing, but you know, on the Mount St. Helens explosion. But that was in 1980, which is the year Elephant Man came out. So I think I might be confused about that. I think maybe there was a critic, maybe Pauline Kale, who compared the look of the Elephant Man to the explosions coming from Mount St. Helens. Just a little odd side note there. Later, uh, Ed and Norma are in a car out kind of in the woods off the highway or wherever, and they're drinking and they're cuddling. It's just a great, great scene. That too is one of my favorite scenes in The Missing Pieces. It's right up there. It's my favorite Ed and Norma scene. I think arguably, certainly one of their best scenes uh, in all of Twin Peaks. You know, it's a great scene and it wound up on the cutting room floor. So I understand that uh, Piggy Lipton, she didn't click with like the what Firewalk With Me was going for. It seemed too dark, too violent, uh, too extreme. And obviously I think much more of the film than she did, but I can totally understand why she'd be upset at losing this scene. It's such a great, great scene. And she says in some documentary about Firewalk With Me, uh, I think the one that was on the New Line disc that they they put on uh, the the missing piece, the the Blu-ray entire mystery as well. She says something like, "There was this nice scene, this beautiful little romantic scene, and uh, I don't know what happened to it or something." And I think when I first saw the documentary, I thought she was talking about like the mood of the series and that it was lost. But then I realized, oh no, she's referring directly to this scene, and it is a great scene. For the Nadine in Crisis subplot, in this case, she's not yet into the Drape Runners territory or the Super Nadine territory. It's just basically jealousy of Norma. She walks in with Ed, sees Norma at the counter, sees how Norma is looking at Ed, and says, I changed my mind, I don't want to go here, and storms out, and Ed has to follow her. This is an extended scene from the film, but it's extended to include Ed and Nadine. They're not in the film at all. For Mike and Donna, their relationship, there's a scene where Bobby and Mike are both hitting on Laura and Donna. It sounds funny to say hitting on, like they're like trying to get them to be their girlfriends. They already are, but you can tell Donna and Mike are, are waning. She even teases him, oh yeah, you're the real man. Yeah, I am the man. You know, they're not going to win couple of the year. In the Hayward living room, Donna mentions that she wants to sleep with Mike soon, and Laura kind of rolls her eyes. The dynamic is similar to what we see in uh, Jennifer Lynch's novel, The Secret Life, or The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, but the events and like the circumstances are different. In that book, it's years earlier when some sort of similar conversation happens where she's going to lose her virginity to Mike, and Donna and Laura is just kind of disgusted with the whole thing. Like, well, first of all, who cares? It's not that big of a deal. And secondly, like, with Mike, really? For the Packard, sawmill ghostwood deal storyline that is such a big part of the series and plays right away in the pilot we have an element actually tying us back into that pilot 
and that's Leland coming in and speaking Norwegian and getting the whole family to sing along. Lighthearted moment that, you know, paints a certain family dynamic, but also functions to uh, remind us of that story, which otherwise has just no presence in any firewalk with new material whatsoever. No Packards uh, other than, you know, the, the sawmill scene that's just a joke with uh, Del Mibbler, but nothing to do with the intrigue or the big real estate deal going on in the town. It's sort of off screen, uh, but that's what Leland's dealing with in his uh, work life, which obviously takes a backseat to what else is going on with him. And the Briggs life, almost forgot. Actually, I did forget. I'm gone back and added this long after the podcast was made public. There is the scene at uh, Bobby's house where the major is reading to uh, his wife, which really meets us right up to where we begin with the Briggs family in the pilot when they are sitting in the uh, uh, in the kitchen and they get the call from Sarah the next morning after this scene. So interesting to come full circle there and worth mentioning. The big subplot of both Firewalk With Me and The Missing Pieces is the Teresa Banks case. So we don't get quite as much of it here as we get in Firewalk With Me, uh, but I'll discuss them in chronological order rather than in, not in how they appear throughout the film, but how they are supposed to appear, you know, in in the world of the movie chronologically. First, we have a flashback with Teresa Banks where Leland calls her for the first time and uh, she's talking to him on the phone. And uh, it's, a, it's a nice little sort of uh, daytime noirish scene. I like I like the vibe of, of uh, the lighting. You know, Ron Garcia's work is so amazing in this i think he's somebody who really lucked out with this finally being unveiled and then the next scene is another flashback with Teresa, renette and laura in the motel and she says oh the guy's split i guess it's just us and they kind of cuddle together on the bed there's a little more of that as i said than in fact i, I think the only shot is the close-up of her in Firewalk with me so here in the missing pieces seeing it first of all you get a sense of their their sexuality the fact that they're all probably sleeping with each other as well uh it's one of the few times Lynch gets anything like explicit about Laura Palmer's queerness, basically, which is a feature, a big feature in the secret history of uh, secret diary. Sorry, the Jennifer Lynch book. It's a big feature in there. And then there's the flashback of Teresa blackmailing Leland. This is a great scene. I think it's a scene a lot of people probably could have used in Firewalk with me. I don't remember where or how or at what point I figured out what was going on with the blackmail plot. If it was clear to me just from the subtitles in the pink room that Leland had murdered Teresa because she had found out his identity. Uh, I think it's implicit enough in the movie, but there are people who didn't pick up on it somehow and were kind of confused as to why Leland killed Teresa. And so this scene would have really brought it home. I don't know how it would have fit the tempo of Firewalk with me, that little flashback sequence when they're in traffic. It's already this good chunk of material so maybe this would have been too much what's unfortunate is this is probably one of pamela gidley's best scenes and that was lost so now we got to see it which is great i wonder if she got to see it she's somebody i'll talk about or have talked about depending when you're listening to this on the fire walk with me episode next Teresa banks case scene is chet and sam leaving the morgue as i talked about this is the first scene we see in the missing pieces and it's a great choice although it probably wasn't a choice it was probably just necessitated it's cool to see this quiet little moment that's something we did see in firewalk with me just subtly expanded outward and we're like ah we're in new firewalk with me now we're seeing something new from that film uh same with arriving at hap's diner it's the uh, same scene as in firewalk with me but slightly extended and talking in the hallway with jack 
uh, Irene's uh, husband, as we find out, I think, only in the script. I don't think they shot anything where he says that. But this is a longer version of that scene we get in Firewalk With Me as well. When they leave the diner, that's the first new scene of the missing pieces. It's an early morning scene. They're leaving there after eating there for an hour or two. And they see Irene leaving and they say, uh, good night. And then they get nervous. They say, I mean, good morning. And, you know, it's this cutesy thing because, well, it is morning. It's not night anymore. But also they're not supposed to say good night, Irene, because that's a famous song that I guess ticks her off. Like I said, the Lynch Engels humor. And then finally, we have one of the big scenes, the missing pieces, really, where Chet fights Sheriff Cable. This is very early on in the missing pieces. I think people watching who hadn't seen the film, this is the part where they'd just be totally thrown off, utterly confused, like, who is this guy? Why are they fighting? What's going on? This makes no sense. They, I would imagine they would feel a sense of sinking desperation, and uh, like the movie is passing them by, and they're missing something that's going on that they're supposed to be getting. It reminds me in a way of like particularly aloof avant-garde films like Straubule or uh, the film Muriel by uh, Alan Renez where there's almost like purposefully removed interstitial material. So you're just getting these jagged scenes with no like connective tissue to explain how they belong together. And you're just supposed to kind of either figure it out or just accept that you don't know. And and that's the experience. There's also this ridiculous haystack piled up in front of the morgue, which makes me laugh whenever I notice it anew. It's like they're trying to prevent Chet and Sam from getting the body. So like 10 feet out from the door, they put up all of this hay. I think that's what's going on there. Maybe it was just something that was there and it's not supposed to be like a barricade, but I hope it is because it's so funny. (laughs) I want it to be a barricade. Lynch was apparently hesitant to include this fight scene, but he was convinced by Charles de Losarica and other people involved with the the Blu-ray. Like, no, you got to put this in. Everyone's waiting to see it. I guess he didn't like it all that much. Uh, Martha Nockamson, the great Lynch scholar, doesn't care for the missing piece at all. And she specifically cited this when we had a conversation a few years ago as an example of something that was rightfully dropped. I can't remember if that made the published interview or not she talks about how much better it was when he just pinched the guy's nose that that was so much cleverer more clever and funnier than this extended lugubrious boxing sequence i get a kick out of it but it is ridiculous interestingly cable never lays a hand on chet Chet misses five punches, and then he lands 20 in a row. I actually counted them for the character study I did once of uh, Chet and Sam. 20 punches in a row, directly, most of them directly to Sheriff Cable's face. So the central story is Laura and the different branches of her experience. To start with, her spiritual life. Particularly fascinating how that's dealt with in The Missing Pieces. So first of all, when Laura's bringing the Meals on Wheels out to her car, she pauses, she's staring at something in the parking lot, and we can't see what it is only by seeing firewalk with me do we know it's the tree moths these weird spirits visiting her and giving her a message it really adds to a sense of what the missing pieces are doing because lynch didn't have to put this part in there he could have just left in the diner stuff more or less unbroken but by having the shot of laura walking to the car putting it down staring but we can't see what she's staring at reminding us no you're getting a different view here this is the non-laura centric view of firewalk with me and for that it's very fascinating for the hayward living room uh, that angel line that i mentioned 
mentioned that wasn't in the screenplay, Cheryl Lee wanted more for her character than she was getting in, in the film. I've talked about this a lot in relation to Firewalk Me. I won't get too much into it here. We know that Lynch added angels into the story as it was being shot and shot that stuff. And I'm just thinking this scene was probably somewhat late in production. It's on the, I believe, the sound stage where they shot the series. Uh, it's not up on location in Washington. So they're filming the scene. And by this point, Lynch has probably either come up with or is on his way to figuring out how he's going to bring angels into it. They haven't shot the train car sequence yet. I don't know if they've shot the Red Room stuff. I'd always love to see a schedule of Firewalk with me and how it was shot. Here he is almost kind of promising the actress, look, I've found your angel. You're going to weep when you see this. That's kind of a beautiful moment for that. It's a meta moment in a way. It would have been very nice in the film, but also it's nice here having already seen the end of the film and knowing what what they're referring to in a way, in a way that maybe even the actors didn't at the time. Maybe even Lynch didn't. We get a dream sequence of Lars where Cooper and the little man are interacting and they're uh, talking to her a little bit. He says, don't take the ring, Lars, etc. In the context of the missing pieces, we don't really know it's her dream. It's only from Firewalk with me that it's presented and framed that way. And it's the exact same scene we see later when it isn't framed as her dream as well. So there's an interesting ambiguity there. And it's extended from what's in the film. And there's also a scene with Laura under the fan where uh, in the film we just get her kind of tugging at her collar and this voice saying, I, I want to taste through your mouth and stuff. But we get much more of that in this. And then this freaky, freaky, great shot where this smile is growing on her face, really sinister. So here we're seeing, in really the only spot in the missing pieces where they were seeing this war for Lara's soul and this idea that these dark spirits are eating away at her. As far as her charity work goes, we see a, a glimpse of that with the Meals on Wheels at uh, at the diner and it's pretty much the same stuff we see in Firewalk with me it's a little extended in this version but it's basically the same material it's never actually I don't think explicated in the missing pieces on their own that that she's involved in prostitution she's obviously involved with sexual activity with other men there's an implication that people are pimping her but it's only made clear in the film itself but we see the flashback with uh Teresa, Renette, and Laura all in the motel where they were going to have an orgy and Leland was the customer so he ran away. That's extended from the film. There's, you know, a shorter version of that where it's just the shot of Teresa brushing her hair in the movie. And then the scene with Laura and the trucker, of course, where she gets into the truck with him, that is, uh, that's obviously coordinated by Leo. And, uh, you know, the implication there is she's exchanging sex for other things. And then driving to party land, taunting Donna in the, in the, in the uh, parking lot, going into party land. Those are Johns that she's picked up at the roadhouse. There's the drug dealing, which we get a little glimpse of when Bobby's uh, handling cash, talking to her by the lockers. We talked about this with the Bobby killed a guy uh, storyline, but it also alludes to uh, how Laura is both on the supply and the demand side of the uh, cocaine issue in Twin Peaks. Now, uh, for the most part, though, the film deals with her as uh, an addict. There's a lot of that in the missing pieces. I think it plays it a little, I don't, I don't think it's that it plays it safe because obviously it's just a function of what's left in the film, but there's a lot of stuff in the film darker, the more sexual material, the abuse that is just not represented at all in the missing pieces, but there's a lot of drugs in the missing pieces. So first we see Laura, she's snuck out, she's on the side of a road, and she climbs into a truck, and uh, the driver's been told to pick her up by Leo and take her to uh, party land. And as they're going, she 
she, uh, I think, takes a bump of cocaine from him. When they're driving to Partyland, they're all snorting cocaine. Laura taunts Donna in the parking lot for refusing to do drugs. We're just seeing, like, she is, you know, she's a cokehead. She does a lot of, dr- of of cocaine and she needs it to survive. We see that especially in the next few scenes where she's looking in her diary and she is trying to find uh, the, the you know residue of cocaine. She gets a tiny little bit from her little baggie and then tapes it back in. And of course, we see that eventually in the pilot that pays off there. Uh, this There's a scene, it overlaps with this that's in the firewalk with me, but this is an extended version of that. And uh, the Jacoby, the scene where Jacoby calls Laura, she's just snorted some cocaine that she got from Bobby. Earlier in the day, we got that scene where they're joking about the drug deal the night before and he passes off some stuff to her and whatever. There's Laura and Bobby lying on the couch and him saying, you know... Uh, that telling her about what happened with the with the coke and she's all pissed because she needs her fix and then he gets she gets a bag from him and she has a line which i i could hardly make out for years but i finally read what it was it was the little round ones too and she's talking about the pills that he put into the little baggie with the cocaine so she needs those drugs as well and then finally when she's you know leaving the brig she's all kind of withered and and devastated and and all of that that scene at the briggs's house is like the last time we see her addiction featured in the missing pieces. Another Laura story section is uh, her her therapy that she undergoes with Jacoby. In this uh, scene in the film, in the or in the deleted scenes, we see Jacoby calling Laura up, and he just seems needy, desperate, pathetic, overbearing, pushy. He asks her for a kiss at the end of the conversation. There's a comical touch to it, a sort of a whimsical touch. You can see why it was left out of the film, not just because why would Jacoby be in the film like he's not in any other part. Tonally, it's a little different. He's got his Hawaiian music going. and I mean, that was added by Lynch in 2014, so that was a decision he made then. But, you know, it builds off of the decor in the scene. It's this long, tilting shot kind of up him. They probably did it in, like, you know, one shot, maybe even one take. Okay, thank you, Russ. You're off. It's a weirdly sort of lighthearted scene that that is would be inserted before one of the darkest scenes. But it's still kind of a withering look at Jacoby. You know, this is this middle-aged man who's basically hitting on not just a teenager, but his patient. You can see that she's just surrounded by people she can't rely on in any way whatsoever. The next story section, we're going to deal with Laura and Donna. In the scene where Laura and Donna are walking towards uh, school and they're talking to Bobby and Mike. You know, we get to see kind of Laura and Donna together as the chums, the friends, almost allied against their boyfriends. Uh, We get more of this in the film itself. That presence is there in the missing pieces too. And when the Twin Peaks theme plays as they walk away from from the the boys, there's, I would say it almost feels like it's in quotation marks. Like there's a little music throughout the missing pieces and what there is is used very sparingly. When it plays, it's almost like, you know, it's not immersive like it is in the film where like, oh, we're back in Twin Peaks and yet there's something so different. It's more like, oh yeah, the Twin Peaks theme, it's playing from a music box somewhere in the distance. It's just, it feels very much in quotation marks. The scene where Donna is comforting Laura at the doorway, it's extended in the film and it's all entirely focused on Donna. We don't see Laura's reaction shot at all in the film. It's more about Laura at the doorway. In this, it's very much about Donna and her discomfort at feeling like she's too uptight and she's not there for Laura. And uh, it's a nice moment for Maura Kelly. In the Hayward's living room, there's a scene with Donna and Laura sitting on the couch. And uh, she's trying to, Donna's trying to comfort Laura, but she's just kind of clueless. She thinks they're going through similar things, and they're really not, of course. She's got 
ordinary teenage girl problems and, and Laura doesn't, she can't talk about it. And there's just this disconnect there, even though there's, you know, an, an effort at affection and everything like that. Their relationship is really compelling. It's one of the most compelling parts of Firewalk with me, I think. And we get more of it in the missing pieces in a way that really nicely complements and builds on what we what we have from Firewalk with me. Also, of course, this scene later, you know, we'll get a scene later in Firewalk with me of them on this couch with a totally different position where Donna's much more shaken. She can hardly remember the night before, but she knows what Laura was up to and she just doesn't understand and just those two scenes juxtaposed I think are, are make a very strong uh, comparison point. We also get the other Haywards coming in, Eileen uh, carrying the muffins in on her wheelchair and then Doc coming in doing a corny magic trick and very affectionately telling Laura, I don't allow smoking in my house but allow you to smoke here, why is that? You know, we get the, the sense of Lars' relationship, not just to Donna, but to her whole family and the comfort that they provide. It's a really strong scene. It's probably my favorite scene in The Missing Pieces and the one that I think most justifies its existence as just this project to connect these two worlds. I think it does it so, so well. And of course, this also explains the muffin comment from Firewalk With Me, one of the most mystifying, obscure pieces of dialogue where Lara says, I am the muffin. We're shown the mundane roots here and this this sort of girlish teasing back and forth forth where it's like hey do you want my mom's bringing some muffins do you want the muffins you're a muffin no you're a muffin you know that type of thing and then that's why she says i am the muffin in fact even at the end of this scene as she's standing outside she goes you're right donna i'm the muffin shouts it out from the sidewalk now this fits a general lynch pattern where he likes to show us something totally mystifying and bizarre and uncanny and then he actually will root it in some kind of real world root where it almost feels like well are we getting like the explanation for it are we just seeing sort of how strange these everyday things really are you know he does that mall and drive with the blue key and and um i think in a way in twin peaks with the ceiling fan where it's this strange object of menace and then we get a more down-to-earth if nonetheless terrifying explanation for why it's significant and you almost kind of see that here with the muffin now the funny thing is it wasn't intended that way it was all scripted in a certain order he cut the scene made the line of dialogue mystifying and now we're able to get it only after the fact i don't know i just find that kind of interesting the pattern there and and how it unfolds even in this unintentional way now speaking of payoffs there was also that intended payoff with doc's red rose this is the scene where he says that you know he was trying to do a magic trick and it worked he pulled up a red rose at sparkwood in 21 in his car while he was waiting at the light and that's why later we were going to see the red rose in that intersection which we don't one other thing that is very off the cuff is doc pulling out the this prescription where he pulls out a piece of paper we can't see if donna gives it to him or if he pulls it out of his pocket and he says what is this i can't read it and donna whispers something in his ear and he hands the piece of paper to laura and he says it's not a prescription it's a secret message the angels will return and when you see the one that's meant to help you you will weep with joy and this feels like a message straight from david lynch to cheryl lee for laura and donna we see them driving together to party land later with these two loggers and here we're really getting that tension in their relationship like this is where the drama really pays off you know i think people sometimes talk about firewalk with me if it's just completely scattershot but there's some very strong dramatic through lines and one of them which we're getting expanded here although it's very strong in the film with what they included already is this tension between laura and donna and the not under 
understanding. And it leads in a very interesting way to Twin Peaks, to the to the dynamic on Twin Peaks, where people have said, they've said a couple things. They've said they don't understand how the Moira Kelly of Firewalk With Me could become Lara Flynn Boyle of Twin Peaks, because this character goes much further and you know, goes to the club and gets drunk and strips down and the Donna of the show would never do that. And then they've said the reverse of like, oh no, Moira Kelly seems much more innocent and uh, Lara Flynn Boyle is more sultry and it just doesn't, it doesn't match that way or something. It works very well for me. Even the fact that they're different actors uh, works very well for me because I think that you're seeing the seeds planted here of, of what will bloom more in the show. And I don't think Donna's just one thing or the other. I think she is generally a very much more innocent, naive character, but you know, it's not that simple. She's, she's also longing for some of what Laura has confused, frightened by what's going on with Laura. And we see that play out in the show in a way Way that I think the party land stuff plants really well. And of course, in the parking lot for party lands, pink room, the power and the glory, call it what you will, the nightclub they go to in Canada, Laura's taunting Donna because she won't take cocaine. She'll drink the beers, but she won't do the drugs. And she goes, oh, what a downer you are and scowls at her. And uh, again, it's just this great dynamic where you're seeing these two people who've been close since they were little kids. And one of them just seeing with shock, they don't know the other person like they thought they did. And it's really powerful, dramatic material. Like it's great. I think it's, it's an underrated quality of firewalk with me, just these, these human dynamics and missing pieces is more all over the place, but we get some of that in the strongest scenes here. And then of course, finally they arrive at party land, they enter into it, go to the back room, which we're shut off from appropriately enough for the missing pieces. We can't cross that border like we do and then some in Firewalk with me. The next story section is Laura's relationship to Bobby. We have a scene where Bobby and Mike are calling out to Laura and Donna from their car as they walk to school. This is extended from the film. Uh, we get a little more of the Bobby and Mike stuff and also some banter between the girls and the boys. It's funny, you know, they're all dating, but they're all kind of, they're not particularly affectionate or drawn to each other, either couple. Uh, it's this weird high school thing where it's almost like flirting behind barbed words or something. And then there's a scene when, uh, later on, when Sarah confronts Laura, as we already discussed, there's this line where Laura says, I know you don't like Bobby, which is an interesting little line. He's the one who, in a way, is accepted by the family, maybe with some resignation, but hey, he's the quarterback, he's popular kid in school or daughter's dating him that's just how it is it's like this acceptable kind of distaste or whatever whereas james feels like much more of a threat at least to leland then there's a scene where laura is teasing bobby in the hallway it's after he's shot the deputy in the woods during the drug deal gone wrong and he's really serious in the scene it's a good little scene obviously not in the movie you know it's in the deleted scenes but it hammers home this idea that Bobby's really upset by what happened. She's really just kind of blasé and getting a kick out of it like she's become so sort of uh, estranged or maybe, you know, she's now so used to the idea of her own mortality and death that somebody else's death just seems like a joke to her. There's the scene where Laura eats asparagus and she tells her mom she's going to go over to Bobby's. You know, it's just this idea. She always uses Bobby as an excuse. He's kind of a front for her in maybe many ways. And then she goes over to the Briggs houses, and the Briggs are sitting there reading the Bible, only seen with Major Briggs and Betty in the uh, film. And uh, they're sitting there reading from the Book of Revelation. They kind of joke about Bobby, and she shares a nice little moment with them where so they say, he's down in the basement. She goes, oh, right where he belongs, huh? And it's almost like this conspiratorial, you know, poor Bobby's getting undercut from every direction with Sarah, you know, to his face on the sidewalk with his own parents. But, you know, they kind of chuckle along and she goes down. And then there's a great scene. It's a strong scene in the movie itself, too, but it's, it's really a fragment there. 
Here we get to linger with it and hold on it and really see the dynamic of Laura's and Bobby's relationship probably better than any other scene. They're on the couch. Bobby's lying there. He's all uh, pissed off because, well, not even really pissed off, just kind of upset and distressed. Not just that he killed the guy, but now the coke that they got from the deal is not even real coke. It was baby laxative. So he's telling Laura about this. She's being sarcastic back, but she's also really pissed. And he kind of pulls her down on top of him. They're kissing and she's crying. And he's realizing she just wants the drugs. Like, she doesn't want to be there with him. It's this sort of sad moment, and I think the actors handle it really well. Especially when you combine the missing pieces with Firewalk With Me. He has more of a role in this entity than probably any other non-Lara or Leland character. He almost has, like, a little arc in it. He has major plot development. He's in a lot of scenes. He's not just there for Lara to kind of bounce off of but he has his own kind of presence and needs, and uh, it's pr- it's pretty effective. I think probably only Donna would rival him in that department. Another aspect of Laura's story is her family life. We're going to go through the scenes that, that deal with this uh, independently. The first one is Laura racing down the stairs out the door, and Sarah's coming in with groceries, and she stops her, and they have a little chat and a little humor in it as she sees Laura accidentally took her cigarette from her hand and kept it, and so she's thinking, hmm, she's starting to smoke, little knowing that Laura's in much more trouble than that it's a nice moment between mother and daughter is very casual as is the next scene where sarah sees laura coming in she confronts her uh says you know you said you were going out to get your books from school but i found them in your room and she's also mad that laura took her sweater that's like an ongoing thing with them and these are nice because they give us a sense of the everyday life in the palmer household uh, particularly between laura and her mother which we don't get to see that much of in uh, Firewalk with me sarah has a memorable role but it's very limited and it's emphasizing just how secondary she is to Leland as a presence in the household how how sort of cowed and overwhelmed she is which leads nicely into the show but in some ways her more active role in the missing pieces is uh, sort of a change of pace which is interesting she also whacks a piano to emphasize her frustration with Laura which is a totally goofy Lynchian moment that I just I don't think would have played in the film itself even if this scene had been included it works much 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 better in the missing pieces and the same could probably be said of the next scene which is the whole Palmer family gathering around for dinner Leland stomps in in a big booming voice acting like a giant says you know where's my axe I'm hungry and he flips over this little uh, stand this wooden stand that has like an axe on it and uh, sitting down to the table and he starts teaching Sarah and Laura how to speak in Norwegian because uh, there's going to be Norwegians coming to the Great Northern soon. This is a scene that Lynch shows these actors in a feature on the Blu-ray set called Between Two Worlds where he interviews all the actors. First, he interviews them in character, which is fascinating to watch. And then he interviews them as themselves. And he says, hey, look at this scene. And they're all kind of amazed. You know, they've known that there were these deleted scenes for years. And he tells them they're going to be seeing them now. And they all laugh. And it seems like the actor's having a lot of fun here. Their sense of fun really comes across in a way that I think works both. I think it works in character because, you know, the the, the characters you're seeing like a, a fun sort of family moment of this quirky a wacky family that we got a sense of from a distance on the show, but now we're seeing them as one unit and that's kind of nice. And it, it, it makes a nice sort of juxtaposition with, 
the darker turns later. But it's also the actors just clearly losing themselves in the humor of the moment too, which is fun. Many people have wanted this scene in the movie. I've, I've heard, this is one of the ones that I've heard viewers and fans say, this needs to be in there. It adds, you know, not just is it a fun scene, but it adds a balance. Like it tells us Leland isn't this monster all of the time, which is important because, you know, we're seeing the contrast there. And I'm not so sure. I think tonally, it. I, I see that argument intellectually, but just instinctively, it, it just wouldn't fit in what Firewalk With Me is cultivating. It's not cultivating this sprawling, multifaceted experience so much as a really intense, focused journey into the, you know, Lara's dark psyche. There are still tangents in there, you know, Lara and Bobby going into the woods. Like, you can't shake that out of the film's DNA entirely because it did come out of the screenplay. But to the extent possible, I think he really focused it, and I, I think that works. I'll admit that does compromise it somewhat for non-Twin Peaks viewers if they're watching this because they're just seeing this one side of Leland. They're losing some of the tension of the shock of how can this lovable, funny guy be also this monster? You know, they're they're not getting that as much because he kind of seems like a monster from the beginning. So I I get that. And it's also, it's the only goofy Leland scene in in Firewalk with me missing pieces where, uh, you know, you're seeing the Leland, particularly of season two, where he's laughing and singing and dancing and you know, this this kind of lovable character. So yes, you lose something, but I just, I think it works better in The Missing Pieces than Firewalk With Me. There's also a fairy tale touch to the scene with him doing the booming giant voice and the axe and where's my food, I'm hungry and all that. I just re-listened to a comment that was sent to me back when I was starting my Patreon podcast from the listener Lawrence, who made some great comparisons to the fairy tales Donkey Skin and also Beauty and the Beast, where there's this triangular uh, situation between a daughter, a father, and a monster. And in Donkey Skin, I think like Firewalk with me, he is the monster and has incestuous feelings towards his daughter. So, you know, there's a strong parallel there. And uh, there's, yeah, there's definitely something going on with that. I think it's meant to directly kind of recall Jack and the Beanstalk or something. It has that resonance. So the next scene, dealing with family life, when Laura is uh, at the Hayward house, she uh, is, is crying and uh, crying at the door and Donna brings her inside. And we know from seeing Firewalk with me that that springs directly from finding Leland in her room, well, finding Bob in her room and then seeing Leland leave the house and realizing for the first time, really, maybe consciously, that Bob might be her father. So this this trauma of her family life, of her abuse, is really coming home. And she can't say it, but she needs comfort from her friend. And then inside the Hayward living room, things are going nicely. The Haywards are comforting her, and she gets a phone call, and it's her dad. And he's saying, it's time for supper. Seemingly a very innocuous call. She gets up, she leaves. She's so sad, and the sadness just fills the room. The Haywards look kind of devastated, like they know something's wrong. Maybe even on some level, subconsciously, they know what it is. Like they just saw the smoking gun, in a way, that her father called and, and this mood set in. But they, they, can't, they can't quite reach that point where they fully recognize it. Also, interestingly, the couch that Laura is sitting on in the Hayward house when she gets this call from Leland that sort of jars her out of her comfort, it's the same couch that Bob climbs over to get to to snarl at Maddie in episode nine of the series. That's a great connection. When I realized that, it was like whoa! Felt like a little bit of an epiphany because that's such a powerful kind of psychic connection there. 
the next scene of the Laura's family life is when she's under the, right after she's under the fan and she has that weird surreal moment with Bob. Sarah interrupts her and is asking about her sweater. Where's my sweater? Do you have it? And Laura's like, you're wearing it, mom. And then something really interesting happens. Sarah starts to tremble and sob and she says, it's happening again. It's happening again. And Laura's like, no, no, it's all right. And that's such a powerful ambiguous moment because of course it's happening again is the giant's line uh, in episode 14 when laura is killed so it feels like the sort of supernatural call out but it also works just as a as a as a statement of like a very human down-to-earth character who's afraid she's losing her mind and has in the past and i love that real world contextualization like you know sarah palmer is somebody who's had struggles with mental illness. It's obvious. Originally in the screenplay, her line was, my God, I'm going to have another breakdown. So that is what they were going for. But Lynch chose a sort of a more poetic way to say that, 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 resonated back to the series as well the next family life scene is when the palmers prepare to go to the horns birthday party uh leland rushes in says don't forget it's johnny horn's birthday today and he leaves and sarah has like a sort of a sarcastic as she's smoking don't forget which is a nice little detail that kind of makes the scene worthwhile otherwise it's like why did they put this in they were going to shoot a party scene at the horns uh with the horns richard bamer really didn't want to do it and I, I'm wondering maybe if at this point he hadn't dropped out yet. So, because it is in the script, whereas there's no scene with Audrey in the script. Sherilyn Fenn clearly dropped out of this project way before they wrote any draft of the screenplay, even because uh, I've seen an early draft and she's not in that one either. As the scene was scripted, they were all going to go to the Horns place. There was some dialogue with Jerry and Ben and Johnny Horn shouting things out and all that. So, this scene, it never. Uh, there's no follow-up to it that was ever shot. It couldn't have been shot because Richard Bamer did not, he didn't want to do the movie and he didn't. But nonetheless, it's another little family moment with the Palmers in this house. So make make of it what you will. There's another scene where Jacoby calls Laura in when she's in her bedroom after she's done some coke and he's trying to tell her to send him some tapes, deal with her problems. It's okay if your parents find out. Like he's so clueless you know he doesn't realize her parents are the problem then there's a scene where laura is eating asparagus with her mom that ties into uh, the diary entry in the pilot where she says she hates asparagus and she says it again in this scene just to underscore it and it's just this quiet deflated moment that follows nicely from the scene in the film where they're all at breakfast and she's really still jarred from the night before when she found out about leland and she tells her she asks her mom where her dad is and she said oh he's at work the norwegians or whatever and she's just you know she's broke She's totally broken at this point. She says she's going to go off to Bobby's. A little bit of a last goodbye, although there is one more goodbye with the mother, which we see in Firewalk with me. However, I suppose it's worth saying, if we're watching Firewalk with me and then the missing pieces, this is the last time we ever see Laura and her mother together in the world of Twin Peaks, other than that Between Two Worlds interview. And then finally, there's the scene where uh, Laura is hiding outside of the house and Leland's staring at her before he goes in, very chilling very disturbing and just showing how far we've come in this family portrait since that early scene of them all around the dinner table it's funny this this is a gorgeous night shop there's all these lights in the background it doesn't feel rural at all it feels very suburban almost like close to a city and when i finally went to seattle a few months before i'm recording this i was looking at the, for the different locations and i realized oh this is actually in us like basically a seattle suburb north of the city whereas all the other stuff is east of the city like a half hour away so totally different area than all of these other twin peaks scenes it's interesting how they filmed not just at different locations but 
very different feeling locations and combined them to create this one town, basically. There's the murder. The first scene we see directly dealing with that is near the end. The log lady is standing outside of her cabin weeping as she hears Laura crying in the distance. This is a great scene, too, to realize, you know, how Lynch tinkered with this material. I know John Thorne mentioned this. John Thorne of Wrapped in Plastic, who uh, I'll be interviewing on my other podcast. But he had a great observation just saying, you know, this obviously, this wasn't sound they picked up. You don't go shoot a scene in the woods and tell somebody stand like a mile away and scream. You, You add it later and you know ADR and so this is it's clear that Lynch did some some extensive audio work some dubbing some you know mixing in of sound effects and things my guess would be I don't think he like brought in actors to record new things in a studio my guess would be he took audio from other scenes where Laura's being marched through the woods and put some effects on it to make it sound distant and put that into this scene so this is a quintessential missing pieces scene it's a great one to start with because we're at a distance from Laura's tragedy we can hear it we can sense it we're with a character who cares about it and the only other scene dealing with the murder directly in missing pieces is a shot of Laura's body floating in the water at high tide near the log where she'll be found and still sort of restlessly bobbing there as she's wrapped in plastic. The central question of this podcast, at least the first half, is who killed Laura Palmer? And that's something we can return to to an extent in the Firewalk With Me and Missing Pieces episodes. Uh, Of course, we've long known at this point it's Leland. Leland is possessed or has some sort of relationship with the spirit Bob. Firewalk With Me, I think, kind of answers more of the lingering questions of why. Why did he kill Laura Palmer? And the missing pieces, as I said, if you take it on its own, it never actually tells us who killed Laura Palmer, though it hints at Leland in that one scene. Uh, Bob's involvement with Laura is only broached in the fan scene, where she's standing under the ceiling fan, and he's whispering to her as the blades were around. So who killed Laura Palmer actually, in a way, recedes into the background if we watch this after Firewalk with me. The question that's always at the center of Twin Peaks, and this is no exception, who is Laura Palmer? The Missing Pieces allows us to see Laura again as a mystery, as we once did. But now she's a living mystery, not something abstract and beyond reach. We see more of the everyday texture of her life than we did in the film, especially her relationship to her mother. And we're seeing her as I've said several times, almost exclusively through other people's eyes in these scenes. I think the only exception might be where she's talking to Bob under the fan and her smile gets wider. And even there, I guess you could say we're seeing her through Bob's eyes in a way. She's always mediated by the other characters in Twin Peaks in a way she is not in Firewalk With Me. And that's one of the most significant differences and why I feel like you can't just combine these two works and say, hey, let's have some grand unified Firewalk With Me. No, like the way these are edited and even the way they work in theory is opposed it's like lynch was not writing one neat delineated film that he then divided up into two works he was writing kind of a messy idea for with all these different ambitions stretching out in other directions and part of the process of creating the final film for whatever reason whether it was suggested by the head of the con festival that he needed to cut it shorter for screening or if i think on some level he and mary sweeney must have known this isn't gonna work this way we need to just leave out most of the town stuff and deal with the Teresa banks murder and laura palmer's days last days whatever the case may be i think from the outset there was just at least two or three different projects going on within firewalk with me and the the separation of the missing pieces firewalk with me expresses that even beyond the post-production factors of 
later decades. Who is Agent Cooper? He seems somewhat dickish and aloof with Sam Stanley and kind of bossy and cocky when he's talking to Diane, who's off screen. In both of these scenes, we're seeing a less uh, endearing, charming version of, of Cooper and more of a somewhat arrogant individual dealing with his colleagues. I think in one case, affectionately but patronizingly and in the other way, very removed and maybe a little little smug with Sam. He doesn't want to tell him what the blue rose is. He's clearly getting very annoyed with him. I mean, it's funny, but it is interesting to think of the impression someone would have of Cooper if they just watched the missing pieces. Firewalk with me, he comes off as fairly humorless, but never in negative light. So that's interesting that these scenes were cut. One thing that's interesting is the final scene, because we also get Cooper, of course, at the end of the film as the doppelganger, something we would never dream of seeing in the theatrical release of Firewalk with me. It would just seem so out of place. It's, in a way, a Further confirmation that the doppelganger is a fur is it like a permanent feature in the outside world? Uh, we don't even see Bob in the mirror this time. The shot that Lynch chooses to use is uh, Cooper laughing, and we don't really see the reflection. And we are also getting confirmation in this in this uh, assembly that Cooper is stuck inside the lodge. Theoretically, in Firewalk with Me, Cooper's appearance there could just be Laura's dream. He could just be sort of communicating with her psychically before she dies uh, from his own place in Philadelphia. But instead, we're getting a clear impression here that there's definitely two Coopers. There's a doppelganger who's in the world. He's not flitting in and out of being Bob and Cooper. He is just this double who's always going to be this double. And that the other Cooper is there inside the lodge. He wants to get out. He knows about Annie. So clearly this is a later Cooper. There's also a suggestion here that Cooper is repeating events and maybe even unmoored in time because he's talking about things that have happened, things that haven't happened. We see him walk into the room and say it's the same way. So it seems like it's the same scene, but different things are happening. So are these branching realities? What exactly is going on here? There's all kinds of questions that the presentation of the missing pieces opens up in a way that even Firewalk with me doesn't. He also seems very distressed and confused inside the Red Room. Uh, nowhere to go but home, as I said, is pretty ominous. What is Twin Peaks? By now, the vision of the town we're getting is much more sprawling and less connected than in the pilot, even though in some ways it brings the characters more uh, together than they had been in a while. Certainly, you know, it brings them more together with Laura, who had come to seem so disconnected from the, the rest of the town as, as the series wore on and all of their stories went on and she was kind of forgotten. The Haywards in particular go a long way in this effort. And of course, we hear about the horns in connection with Laura, although we don't see her go there. We see the Briggs, uh, her interaction in their home. And, uh, you know, she kind of brushes shoulders with Norma and Shelley, doesn't really interact with them. They're sort of in their own worlds. All of this, too, in terms of how the town actually looks, it seems much less bustling or intense than in the series. Uh, in the series, it's a small town, but there's a kind of uh, togetherness with everybody. And, of course, as it goes along, you see at the department store and then eventually at the roadhouse, Miss Twin Peaks, at the diner all the time throughout the series. It's always a busy little town. Whereas in this version of it, everything seems very empty and kind of sparse. Certainly the diner feels that way. Even when they're walking to school, it's just them on the sidewalk. And even though it's in that it's in that neighborhood in a way it isn't on the show, the Palmer House, it still feels kind of like its own world, remote from everything else. Everybody's enclosed in their own little stories. So even though compared to what we get, I guess, on the series between Laura and the community, this feels like it's bringing things more together. When you go back and look at the pilot and compare it to Missing Pieces, I think you get a different sense of the town where it just doesn't all seem to be about this one central drama the way it is on the show. 
That's it for this episode. Tomorrow, the exclusive Fire Walk With Me narrative focus begins. We're going to talk about the film's structure and then start to look at the scenes, the subplot scenes that are not related to Laura, and uh, talk about those. You can rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. That's the best way to get other people to see it. And uh, you can also support this work as a patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. For the dollar a month patrons, you get a monthly podcast talking about some of the stuff I've seen, what I've been listening to, and other subjects like that. Sometimes I'll do a film review each month. I have an archive where I I did film reviews every month, but that'll probably be lightening a little bit so I can focus on some public work. But for $5 a month patrons, you get every month the second half of my Twin Peaks conversation series that I do on YouTube, where I have a talk with a different Twin Peaks author or scholar or or someone from the fan community, not um, creators of Twin Peaks, but like other people like myself who have a lot to say about it. I put about half on YouTube, but sometimes less than that, sometimes like a third. And so there's a lot of material in the back part of it, and that's exclusive to the $5 a month patrons. So that's a perk of that. So that's the uh, patron spiel, and uh, we'll see you for the next episode looking at the structure and subplots of the film Firewalk With Me. Where am I? And how can I leave? You are in. Now there is. Now face to go. Ah, down. Ha 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 